0: Welcome to the Riverwood Chapel Podcast. We're so excited you're here. Please check out our other content and video uploads at riverwoodchapel.org. Thank you. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Look at you faithful servants of Jesus Christ coming. Yes, give yourself a hand. Yeah. Coming and being on this first Sunday of the year. Last time I popped this whole thing off, so I'm like making sure I'm not doing it again. Uh, I'm glad you're here on our first Sunday of the new year. Uh, I hope, uh, does everyone have their New Year's resolutions figured out? No? Last time, I feel like everyone's like, yeah, maybe they're all lying, I don't know. But, um, you know, I shared with them a statistic I came across. They say in America, 91% of the people who actually make a resolution, they do not finish them. So hopefully that's not us who are here. Maybe that's why you're going like, I'm not even going to make one because of that reason. Uh, But my name is Tom Chamberlain. I am not Pastor Cole. I have the privilege of uh, giving oversight to our adult discipleship ministry here. And now I have the privilege to come before you and to preach God's word, which I uh, do with fear and trembling every single time I have that opportunity. If you recall, we have been in Hebrews, but we are putting a pause to that. Uh, the last three weeks, I believe, or maybe this is the third week, uh, we have done a little mini-series to focus on individuals in the Bible who have such a deep faith that no matter what God asks of them, they are obedient to do it. And so if you recall, Pastor Josh, he talked about the shepherds, and then Pastor Cole, he talked about Mary and Joseph, and today we get to talk about Job. That's a way to start off the year, right? Yeah, you might be thinking, well, that's all usually about suffering, yeah, it usually is, and uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, I just want to say this. I want to be sensitive to those who are currently suffering or have suffered a lot. Re- reality is you, you, we are people, and we have been through a lot, and know that you've been on my mind and my heart as I've been preparing this. This has been a very, very heavy week, and just hearing from God's Word and trying to wrestle with it and to accept it, that's really hard to do. And uh, so know that I'm keeping you in my minds and hearts as I have prepared this and as I deliver this, but know that I'm committed to being true to what God says he is and who he is through his word. And so that is my heart and desire in this. Uh, The question where we... Well, uh, you, as you get to know me, you'll notice I love to ask a lot of questions. Um, and so the big question we're going to be answering today as we dive in scripture is, was Job's faith real or was it a means to an end? So if you're a note taker, make sure you write that down to assure that this is where we're aiming for. And the passage that we're going to be looking at is Job chapter 1, verse 21 through 22. Anybody thinking, wow, two passages or two verses, that's it? That's all we're going to be studying today? Not exactly. Uh, this is the verse, that, or these are the pa- this passage I want us to look at in light of the whole book of Job. I don't think you can really talk about Job and not look at all of the vastity that comes with it and complexity that comes with it. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, uh, with our time this morning. Uh, With that, if you're someone going like, tell me where we are and where we are heading, I got you covered. I'm the same way. So the lay of the land today is that we are going to answer this question by looking at who tested Job's faith. That's where we're going to land first. And then how Job's faith was actually tested. Why Job's faith was tested. Okay, so if you're writing those down, who tested Job's faith? I know they're probably up there, how Job's faith was tested and then why Job's faith was tested in the first place. And then we're going to turn the question on ourselves. We're going to ask the same question we're asking Job. Is, is my faith real or a means to an end? And I think you'll get more clarity as we, as we study God's word together. To give you a little just background, and it has to be little because we don't, background of Job is because we don't know a lot about Job or the book of Job. What we do know is that it is a very old book. It's one of the oldest books that were ever written in uh, in the world. And that Job lived somewhere between 2000 and 1000 BC. So very, very, very long ago. He was an Israelite in the land of Uz, which is, to be honest, somewhere east of Palestine. We know that much. Okay, so it's over there. Job, uh, his recordings of his life, the book of Job... they are real. He is real. And the reason why I have to say that, because that's been debatable over the years. A lot of people have said, no, he's a fictional character, because as we get into his life, you would go like, yeah, this guy has to be fictional. Please let him be fictional. And so a lot of people have said that he is, but interesting is that the prophet Ezekiah in 1414, he actually mentions Job, coupling him with Noah and Daniel as a righteous man. And then you fast forward 400 years when the book of James was written and James speaks of Job's faith and the Lord's faithfulness to Job in James chapter five. You see, whenever he is referenced, he's not just referenced as this man, Job, he is referenced as a righteous man because of the steadfast faith through a life of suffering. And when I say suffering, I mean in ways that many of us will never face, in ways that none of us could even dream up, in unspeakable ways, in ways that none of us would actually wish on anyone's life it was that bad. What's interesting, Job, he didn't have it always like this. He didn't always suffer. He was actually the complete opposite, and we learn this in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, and I'm going to read it for you. the East. Job, if you will, maybe he was considered a modern-day Elon Musk as it pertains to wealth. Job, he, he had it all and then some until he didn't, right? Once the Lord saw a right to test Job's faith, which leads us to our passage today, Job chapter 1, 21 through 22. He says, Naked I, come, or naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So who tested, who tested Job's faith? This statement, this passage I just read, it comes after a very, very disturbing interaction between Satan and God. And as a result of it, Job is instantly struck with hardships, and it's laid out in chapter 1, verses 6 through through 19, and I'm going to paraphrase it for us. Satan is accompanied by angels as he enters the presence of the Lord. The Lord asks him where it is that he has been, which Satan basically says all over the world. The Lord then asks Satan in verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now what is implicitly implied here is that Satan is about the world causing havoc because the world has fallen and the Lord is giving him permission to do so. This is very disturbing. Satan replies with two questions and then he Quickly answers himself based on his limited knowledge of Job's faith, which has prompted us to ask this morning's question: Is Job's really faith real? Is his faith really real, or is it a means to an end? As we see here in verse nine through eleven, Satan answered the Lord and said, "Does Job fear God for no reason? It's basically like, come on, this is a joke. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has in every side?" You have blessed the work of his hands, and in his possessions have incre- and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan believes that Job's faith is nothing more than a perception. Because God has put a hand of protection around him and blessed him with status and wealth. And if God would remove such a protection and prosperity, the facade of his faith. The one that actually Job has would be revealed. And it would be a faith that is empty, that is not real, but rather a means to an end. Simply maybe to make himself feel like he is doing something good. Or to receive God's approval. Now I must ask on this first day of the year, is this true of you? And I'm asking myself the same question. Is my faith real Or a means to an end? God knows, but do I know? May I suggest suffering answers such a question. Suffering was what God brings upon Job after Satan seeks his permission to create havoc in verse 11. He says, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Remember, that's what Satan says. But don't miss this very important understanding of God. And evil. Evil can only come about through God's righteous approval and command. Satan is free to roam and bring about hardships within the confinements of God's sovereignty. I like to think of it this way: Satan is like a dog on a retractable leash. The Lord releases to extend his calamity and then reels him back in as he sees fit. Verse 12. The Lord responds to Satan's request. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So, how is Job's faith tested? Tragedy strikes. And we see his faith being tested through these verses, 13 and 19. Four messengers come to Job with the horrific news that the Sabines have taken his herds and killed his servants. They're gone, dead. A crack of lightning has struck his flock of sheep and the shepherds, gone, dead. The Chaldeans have raided his camels and killed his servants too. And if it's not bad enough, a cyclone has come It has struck the house where all the cho- his children were feasting and now they are dead. Verse 20, this is Job's response to this news. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. What's wrong with that, right? <laughs> he fell on the ground in worship. Before we go on, I want to acknowledge something very striking, but then also offer a word of confession before you. The first, what's striking to me in Job's response, when Job learned of the death of his children, and out in and out of his grief, he did what? Did we catch that? He 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 fell on the ground and he worship. A better translation of this is he fell prostrate in utter submission and worship. In and out of his grief, he put his face in the ground, bottom in the air, and a full expression of submission to God in worship. That was his response. Confession time, in 2015, when my dad, at the age of 58, died of cancer, I didn't grieve in such a way. Instead, I yelled and told him how disappointed I was in him for not considering my feelings, the fact that my daughter would never know her grandpa, or the fact that now my mom has to live alone. Let me tell you, that's grief, yes, but it's grieving out of anger, not grieving through a heart of submission and worship to God who is worthy of it and deserves my trust. So what about you? How have you grieved over the years? Or how do you plan to grieve over the years? Like me or like Job? You might be asking, well, how does one even prepare to grieve like Job? Let's continue to read our passage. Verse 21, it says, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. For starters, don't put your trust, hopes, and dreams in the things of this world. Now, your career, your status, your position as a parent or a spouse, your family, money, possessions, or your future plans. Well, this can go on and on because they can only offer temporary emotions of happiness. They're fleeting. But God, he can offer a never-ending eternal hope, a faith that can be steadfast like Job's, even if you too are stripped of all the worldly possessions which are loaned out by God in the first place. Have you thought about that? For you came into this world naked without. You will leave this world naked without. All the in-betweens are God's blessings, but they're temporary. Unlike the forever blessing of being with him for eternity, the ultimate blessing. So guess what? Thus far, Satan is wrong. Job did not curse God. His faith seems to be real. As we read in verse 22, the suffering continues, and now the removal of good health. In chapter 2, we learn that Satan is once again accompanied by angels to the Lord, and the dialogue between the two is the same until Satan says this, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold... He is in your hand. Only spare his life. The Lord gives Satan free range to perform physical suffering on Job. Chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 Job received loathsome sores, it says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And you he would take broken pottery and you would scrape at these sores due to agony and pain. So leading up to this point, Job had everything and more, and now he has nothing, nothing of possessions, doesn't have kids, doesn't have good health, but he does have a wife and he does have three friends who intended to come alongside of him to offer him support and encouragement, but instead, we will learn, ended up pouring gasoline on the uncontrollable fire in his life as the second-hand misery of Job's suffering becomes too unbearable for even those closest to him. And now we see the suffering continues as the removal of encouragement from his wife takes place. In chapter 2, verse 9, Job's wife says to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And this is Job's response. In verse 10, he says, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Now listen to the rest of this verse. This is very important. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? What Job is telling us here is that God is God and I am not. I don't understand why and I don't possess the control of my life like I thought I did. But I have a heavenly father that does. And I trust he has a reason for what he does, good or bad. Because he is good and merciful, and his ways are just and holy, even when my feelings or my surroundings don't match up with who God says he is. I, Job says, I will trust and I will obey. Now that's faith. It says in the rest of verse 10, In all this, Job does not sin with his lips. But the suffering continues in the removal of encouragement of these three friends. Over the next 29 chapters, we learn of the months that go by, Job has various conversations with his friends about his suffering. Their intentions and efforts started off well, but over time, they couldn't bear the pain he was enduring. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 13 says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil, That had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. That's how destructive, how painful, how much suffering physically he was going through. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Then, after seven days of silence with his friends, Job speaks. Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Job said, let the day perish wherein I was born. Weeks of suffering have passed and Job begins to question God. Verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Verse 20, why is light given to him that is in misery and light to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not? Job at this point is just done. He wishes he had never existed if it was just going to be for pain and suffering. John Piper, he likes to say that, that Job is at this point protesting against God. Because it goes back. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 21 there. He says, the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. He's angry. This prompts his friends to speak up. Starting with Elphaz. Over a course of two chapters, he believes Job's suffering is a result of sin. And if he were righteous, he would be blessed with prosperity. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, Think or remember who that was innocent ever perish. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. His harshness continues into chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, that Job should be freed from suffering and he can if he were more committed to the Lord. This is terrible counsel. This is terrible theology. Job's other friend, Bildad, offered the same counsel, but in a much degree harsher, by now pointing at his kids. We see this in chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. He says, does God prefer justice Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Bildad accused Job of sinning just like his kids. This is why all this is happening, Job. If if you were to repent, then all would go well for you. Here's Job's response, which I absolutely love. In chapter 9, and this tells us more about his understanding of God. Chapter 9, verse 22 through 24, he says this. It is all one. Therefore, I say, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster springs, sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of uh, of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Job believes God is is in control and knows that it is not right to think all is or should be well for those who are righteous the third and last friend zophar leads with another blow to job in chapter 11 he's informing now job that he is not innocent but rather should stop sinning and make things right with god This is the same message presented by Elphaz and Bildad, one punch, two punch, three punch. The simple answer they're saying, the quick fixer of all of your suffering, Job, as you are sinning, now turn from these ways and prosperity will come to you. Job's friends do not let up, but they continue to deliver blows with the same message up until chapter 31, which we learn Job then starts to give into the lies. Job is faced with the question, Is my faith real or is it just a means to an end to deal with the slandering of his friends or maybe to receive approval from a relentless God? In chapter 19, 11, Job sins as he spews words of anger towards God. He says this, he has kindled, he's talking about God, he has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. But we see Job's steadfast faith prevail as he is moved to repentance not because he believed his friends were right but because he was starting to see he was believing that God wasn't, that God was against him, that maybe God is his enemy and that God did not have his best interests at heart and that maybe God isn't merciful, maybe he's not even kind, maybe he doesn't even love me So Job repents. We see this in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. He says this. I know. He's speaking to God. I know that you can do all things. We learn of God's character right here. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He is God and I am not. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And it continues on to verse seven. You would think that God would respond to Job, but he doesn't. Instead, he responds to Eliphaz. And these words, he says, my anger burns against you, and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. You're still wrong, Satan. Up to this point, we see through a loss of money, possessions, the death of his kids, physical pain, and discouraging words from his spouse and closest friends, Job has not cursed God to his face. It begs the question what gives? Right? Then why hasn't the suffering stopped if Job's faith has proved to be real through it all? So, why is, jo- why is Job's faith questioned in the first place? What we're seeing through a man who is labeled by God as a blameless and righteous man is a life of perpetual suffering because he is blameless and righteous, he is faithful. God is not punishing Job because he is wicked, but quite the contrary. we got to know this. We have to understand this first. This isn't God's perfect will, to give Satan permission to administer havoc in Job's life, or anyone's life for that matter. But remember, we dismissed and abandoned his perfect will when we invited sin into the world back in Genesis 3. If you recall, God had just finished creating the world at the pinnacle point of his creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, in which he made us humanity. He created us in his image and his likeness, it says. And then this is God's response. In verse 31, he says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was good. You see, God created a world with no sin with no sickness, with no satanic test, but we thought we knew better. That a world was such we can handle. And so we here we are in a fallen world where God's permissive will reigns, allowing Satan to roam within God's sovereign parameters. But it's temporary. It's temporary until Jesus comes to rescue those who believe in Jesus as his Lord and Savior, where you will be plucked from the sinful world and in the presence of of God of the universe. So God really did give Satan permission to administer hardships and suffering in Job's life, not because he did something wrong or he had sinned against him, but rather because God knew Job could handle it because his faith was real. Job didn't realize how real his faith was until suffering came about in his life as he stated in verse 5 chapter 20 or 42. I just read it but I'll read it again. It says, "I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you." In other words, Job knew all the right words to say. He knew all the right things to do to show that he had faith, but until suffering, he had never really seen God. He knows God now. James chapter five, verse 10 through 11, it says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Here's the purpose of it. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord's purpose behind Job's suffering is to make his glory known through his compassion and mercy. His definition is different than ours of compassion and mercy. He does this in and through all those who are Christians and even He even did it to his son, Jesus Christ. When he came to earth to pay for the sins we could not pay for. He does it for his glory. Chapter 42, verse 11, at the end of the book of Job. Then came to him, all his brothers and sisters, it reads, and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. This is the God of the universe. This is the God who sent his one and only son for you and for me. This is the God who loves you more than you can ever fathom or will ever know on this side of heaven. He gets you, he knows what's best for you. Even when it physically or mentally or socially or financially it hurts, he is the same today and forever. He deems you to be blameless and righteous because he, don't miss this, because he has placed an irrevocable faith in you that is sealed by the Holy Spirit of an all-powerful and all-loving victorious God. That's the faith inside of you if you believe in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. He promises to bless you. We see this in verse 12 of chapter 42, and it reads, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He doubled Job's blessings. Now, what I don't want you to think is this an equation Suffering plus steadfast faith equals earthly blessing. Remember, God works in ways he sees fit. So this might be a way that he blesses you, but I think Revelations gives clarity to the ultimate blessing God wants for all of us. Revelations 12, verse 10 through 11, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser, Satan, of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him, get this, oh, he have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the testimony, their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. In Revelations, the author John is writing about the faith of, of Christians that is so real that they realize, yes, that life is a blessing, but it's not the ultimate blessing, which is actually to die and to be with God, which is what he originally planned. Joe, John, Paul, they fully understood this. The apostle Paul speaks of it in Philippians chapter one, verses 12 through 21. As Paul is in prison, for not the first time, not the second time, but for the third time. He is awaiting a trial for a verdict that will lead Paul to freedom. Freedom from the prison cell to continue to spread the gospel or freedom from the prison cell to death. Either way, the results are positive in Paul's mind. It reads, I want you to know, brothers... That, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. My imprisonment, my suffering, my hardship, everything that is going on in my life is to advance the gospel, to give glory to God. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident, And the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love and knowing that I am here, put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in it that I will rejoice. Doesn't matter. He doesn't care. Christ's word is going out there. Yes, he says, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and the hope that I will not be at all ashamed But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So the question we were asking today that was ignorantly implied by Satan in chapter 1, is Job's faith real or a means to an end? I think we can clearly see through God's word that it was was real. God knew it was real. So real that he knew without a doubt that he could allow Satan to cause havoc in his life no matter what. And that he would never curse him. But quite the opposite. Job worshiped and he blessed the Lord's name in and through his suffering. So if this question is asked of Job's faith, shouldn't we ask it to ourselves? Is my faith real or is it a means to an end? What if the answer to this question is revealed through suffering? Do you still wish to ask the same question? Or maybe you are experiencing suffering that seems to never end. I want you to be encouraged by these words from James, James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We face such things because they make you more like Christ. And when you are more like Christ then others come to know Christ through your suffering all for the glory of God. That's why you're here. That's why we're all here. I don't think there's any better way to close our time together than the words of Paul in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Gracious and heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you we have access to it, even though, gosh, it feels so uncomfortable. It doesn't make sense, and we have probably more questions now. But you have faithfully spoken to us to help us to understand who you are and who we are. And so I just pray that everyone feels encouraged wherever they are in their stage of life, whether they have suffering in whatever degree that is, God. May we see that our life is to be a living sacrifice. This time is temporary. These struggles are temporary. These wishes and dreams, they're temporary. But to be with you for eternity, that is not. And it's a promise you give to us who believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, and none of this we'll ever have to worry about again. So may we take advantage of our sufferings and give you glory in and through them. pray this in your name, amen.